Hello and welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. In the Arnhem Land Plateau, in the stone country called the Kawadiwadi, there is a special calendar that tells an important story of the land and the sky. It has six seasons, capturing the subtle changes in the landscape and in nature that the local Beninj Kunwok clans have seen over the vast time they have lived and travelled across the land. It's a calendar intimately and instinctively understood by the locals, but until recently it had not been made into a visual form. That's all changed now, thanks in large part to the establishment of a local bicultural school called the Nawadakan Academy. If you look closely at the calendar, you soon appreciate that it's a stunning rendition of how landscape, weather, flora and fauna interact, capture and preserve the ancient cycles of change and renewal. There is vibrant colour, local language, photographs, and unlike other calendars, a circle of seasons that moves through green to yellow to orange to red and to blue, reflecting the interaction between weather, land and water. The calendar is a powerful symbol of what's happened in northwest Arnhem Land during the past few years. It points to the critical role of the Wadekan Land Management Limited, a body that governs and helps sustain the locals to be on country and to re-establish their cultural practices and pass them on to the next generation. And it also shows how philanthropy has come to find a place here in listening and supporting for the years it takes to help shape better outcomes through land management and the academy. Those who have seen the calendar come into being know its value. Here is Olga Scholes, Executive Officer at the Nawadikan Academy. For us to develop that calendar and for the education we are delivering, for it to be place-based, site-specific, contextual and engaging for a community, it's taken an incredible amount of work and resources to get to that stage and we could not have done that without the support of philanthropy to be able to develop that calendar and all those 18 units because it involved travelling around the whole of, you know, West Arnhem, gathering knowledge from key knowledge holders and TOs and Jungais to get that knowledge together. And that's something that I think is perhaps not yet recognised or valued in the education space and the importance of that for people to be engaged in, in education and for that two-way learning to occur and that two-way respect to be realised in both the landscape, land management and the education space. One of the profound challenges confronting Wardekin has been the exodus of their own people from the Stone Country after the non-Indigenous arrival. The largely depopulated area became prone to wildfires and feral animals that threatened the area's unique biodiversity and cultural sites. In 2007, building on the local push from 36 local clans, the Wardekin Land Management Group was established to help reconnect with the land, rebuild the precious environment, preserve cultural practices while working and learning on country. Into this situation came the Karkad Kanji Trust, an organisation that brings Indigenous ranger groups and philanthropists together to work on conservation, ranger employment and the transfer of Indigenous knowledge. Justin Punch is KKT Chair. 
Many Australians, he says, are detached from the landscape. In our urbanised cities, there are few opportunities to contemplate what goes on in remote Australia. So what's been happening in northwest Arnhem is different. Often the great answers happen in the intersection of, of these different issues and forces. And I think the way I think about Indigenous land management is that it's happening right in the intersection of these two monumental and unresolved issues for Australia. One being that our vast and unique and increasingly endangered environment, utterly unique, the Australian environment. And secondly, the place and the future and our relationship with of the first Australians in in that place. Uh, And in the intersection of those two things, between environment and the nature of our relationship with the first Australians and their relationship with these landscapes, in that intersection, this work gets done. And, And so as a consequence, it's solving on multiple axes. KKT is at its core an environmental organisation, but what its involvement in Northwest Arnhem Land has helped to achieve is not just environmental, but educational as well. After responding to the request from Indigenous elders and community leaders, Wardekin and KKT helped establish the Nawardekin Academy in an initiative that keeps families of local rangers together on country and helps provide them with the opportunity to learn local knowledge. It started seven years ago. KKT continues to support and promote on-country conservation, climate change initiatives, a women's ranger program and bicultural education through working with First Nations communities. It's about creating something unique from the separate threads, as Dean Ibabuk, Chair of the Wardekin Land Management and Binji Chair of KKT, explains. Now, you know, we're looking at bringing those traditional practices together, our education and our um, engagement with the land management. The work is distinctive in its focus, approach and duration. Justin Punch points out the foundation of the work is undertaken with what he calls patient urgency. The work has to be community-led and that kind of consensus and, you know, it takes time. But just how interrelated this all is, is actually worth explaining. Six years ago, the Wardekin Dalek Ranger team was established, and as a result, local women had the opportunity to be involved directly in caring for their country. There's a vital role for women in the Ranger workforce. They're holders of specific knowledge of habitat and land management, and they have exclusive access to some places. It makes women's role in the broad management of country an integral part of not only land conservation, but also the critical transmission of that knowledge to the next generation. The Wardekin Rangers are based at Warner Mayo Outstation from where they manage 1.4 million hectares. It's remote and vast, and because of that, Warner Mayo cannot qualify as a government school. So local kids have had to move away to go to school and that takes them a long way from home, a long way from families. Alternatively, the families themselves have to leave country to be with their children. Either way, the crucial connection with country is jeopardised or broken. The Nawardican Academy helps end that. Children learn the local knowledge derived from a specific curriculum developed in partnership with community elders. It's taught alongside the Australian curriculum 
in a bicultural model that provides local children with the skills required to work and live on country. It's the combination of Beninge and Belanda. Dean reveals just how important these initiatives are for the long-term sustainability of language and local knowledge. Today, now people are worried. Our children are not talking a proper language. People not knowing the proper landscape or land where their fathers and their grandfathers belong because they were grown up in the community. Their parents have grown up in the community. Their whole livelihood looked at the community. It's like a home for them. People started to pick up things what had been happening within Oregon land management. People are talking about home back and reestablishing their home through the land management practices. The breakthrough has been the first Nawadakan school has become such a success that it spawned two other schools. But all three at Kabulawana Mayo, Manmoi and Mamandawi have now been given independent school registration. And the significance of that is it means recurrent government funding to secure the academy's future. And as Justin explains it, all of this has been achieved while maintaining environmental priorities. On the foundations of the Ranger program, we've been able to help those communities to establish a unique, incredibly amazing bicultural school in this peaceful, high-functioning community. We've seen, you know, the establishment of women's ranger programs and landmark rock art program up there, expanding the firework and the the large-scale carbon abatement work that happens up there. Now there's palpable enthusiasm for the possibilities the bicultural education provides, especially as it fits into that government school's curriculum. And that in part was driven by what locals identified as a priority. From when, you know, Margie Moroni stood in the spring with Lois Nagy-Merrick and said, what you guys doing up here is absolutely remarkable. What do you need more than anything else? And Lois said, we need a school. (laughs) And Margie said, okay, then, well, let's get on to that. And... You know, everything flowed from that particular conversation and expression of desire by that community and one of its leaders in Lois Nagyneric um, to, to, you know, express that desire. Now, Margie and, and, and the team with it from Wadakan Land Management, from Garagat Country Trust and from the community on the ground worked together to work up the model for how that should work. But it all came from that moment, right, of, of that expression of, of, of need and of desire, and, you know, for what was required. The goal is to provide an education that enables children to walk in both cultures, to understand and connect with the deep resonance of their own culture, as well as the opportunities of the Western culture. Or as Dean puts it, In the future, we only see two education systems in parallel, Western education and traditional education. How far that we try to drive to try and educate Western teachers or Western government and prioritise where we want to be in next generations, not my generation, for my children's generations. And the calendar is at the heart of what this bicultural education looks like, as Olga explains. We've got a two-year project at the moment to develop our curriculum around that seasonal calendar ah, so okay. that that Indigenous ecological knowledge transfer is occurring not only when the kids walk outside and are out with their families, but it's being supported 
in the classroom and integrated into the Australian curriculum so that those links between Indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge are being made, you know, on two fronts, out on country, but also valuing that knowledge in the classroom with regard to, you know, and extending it through the through the Australian curriculum and looking further abroad and going, well, what do what do other places in the world do in this circumstance? What are other calendars look like for at this time of year? What's happening elsewhere? Mm. The calendar was probably a really big pivotal point for the academy in terms of how we do things because it was made really clear to us as Balanda, as non-Indigenous people, that, you know, everything that that happens out on country is seasonal and you have to go with the seasons and be really aware of what's happening around you. We worked for about a year to develop Mm. the the base seasonal calendar and now from there we're going to have about four or five thematic seasonal calendars that concentrate on specific themes but also based around the six the basic six seasons. Dean goes into more detail about how the calendar reflects the seasonal changes. We're starting off from Wetchison, which is Brunamaling. From Wet, we go to Bangarang, which is in our month after December, uh, January, February and March, that's become drying up. No more wet, no more rain. Then we call that as Bangare. In May and June, that season we call Yeke. It's a nice cold weather. People can move around. It's not much, so much hot, but it's nice and cool. Also, in that period, people started to burn the grass. Uh, when, whenever the grass is, you know, ready to burn, people will chuck matches there. Just to clear our patches for families to move around, hunting and all that. Then uh, when it comes to uh, July, August, it is full again. It's dry, burning, wildfires occurring. Also, there's a lot of flowers coming between Yake and Urgen. The flowering of cow fox or flowering of uh, turkey bush, you know, all that other edible uh, fruit trees comes on, you know, during that ease. Then from Urgen, it goes to Burung, which is really dry and hot where we have to start watching the wildfires within our district. And when that wildfires occur, our rangers are, uh, you know, are ready. But also they are there chucking our matches or doing a road burn or going out during their surveys. But it's all according to our traditional rights practices. But he'll tell you, 50 kilometres up the road, it may be a different calendar. Nonetheless it'll work for all three schools. What is fundamental, though, is that local children start their education on country where an intergenerational transfer of knowledge can take place, and each of the school campuses has two permanent qualified teachers, up to four casual Indigenous teaching assistants, and up to 20 students. Education was in part what brought the Dusseldorp Forum into the picture. Dusseldorp is focused on improving education, health and social outcomes for Australian children and their families. It partnered with Waterkin Land Management in 2016 to support the development and growth of the Nomwaterkin Academy model and the vision of the Waterkin people to better serve the educational needs of the children of West Arnhem Land. Dusseldorp Forum's Executive Director, Taya Dusseldorp, is also a director of KKT. She identifies philanthropy's capacity for patient capital to stay the long course that's been vital in this instance. But this project affirms for her some important lessons along the way, particularly the need 
for a holistic approach. One of the key things that we've learned from working alongside First Peoples now for you know nearly a decade is you can't separate these things out. So mm. our foundation originally was mm. really focused on education as that enabler for young people to flourish. But what elders in Arnhem Land and in other places have taught me over the years is you can't separate out the education of young people as a means of them flourishing from their families, from their communities flourishing, from living in a a rich cultural environment and, and in their physical environment. All of these elements are completely linked. So what we've shifted is we now work far more holistically We support far more holistic work. We don't just say, oh, well, our piece of this is education. We say, okay, we're all aiming to support young people to have the best futures that they can have. In order to do that, we really need to be looking across all of these elements. It's not only education, it's it's health, it's justice, it's environmental sustainability. You know, it's it's all of these things together that will enable that. The collaboration has also given her something special too. You actually learn far more sometimes than you contribute. I can, you know, say definitely in my case, in our foundation, we've learned more from being a part of that collective than we have potentially from the resources that we've contributed to that mix. So I've learned now about so much about the depth of the knowledge of that country, the sophisticated methodology for you know, managing country, but also dealing with the impacts of climate change that are hitting that part of Australia. I've learned about excellence in governance. I've learned about culture that, you know, I've never had access to previously, language, beauty of a part of the country that, you know, I didn't know or had had a chance to um, engage with. There's so much that opens up for you when you can join a a collective and work more holistically and it only enriches then your understanding of how do we best support education? What does that need to look like? And those lessons then can be shared with other places where you're working, other groups that you're working with. Justin Punch at KKT agrees on the need for a holistic approach and although the project might have started from a single focus, its benefits have reached into other areas. At its most essential, I think, you know, it's this highly purposeful employment that just has these cascading benefits across both environment, cultural and social uh, spheres. It might have taken six years from the establishment of the academy, but no one was concerned about how long it took. Here was a dialogue with First Nations that was driven by their priorities and their time in their place and according to their calendar. The Nomotican Academy was a brilliant philanthropic project. It was just a textbook case of catalytic philanthropy that will just reverberate, hopefully touch wood, will reverberate through that region and those communities for decades to come. That's the kind of project that philanthropists just love to get engaged with. It's kind of risky. You're backing a group of people with a plan to create something, but there's an end game where that know that once established, the financial cavalry arrives and it's picked up and, and becomes part of the mainstream system. That was the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.